Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Victoria Kahn, who is a lecturer in humanities at the University of East Anglia in the UK. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Girls Like This, Boys Like That, Understanding the Reproduction of Gender in Contemporary Youth Taste Cultures. So welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh no, my, my pleasure. I mean, this uh, is... A fascinating book and it's both you know kind of really important I think theoretically but also uh, in our kind of current context where we're constantly being told things about young people in in, in the media uh, this really you know provides uh, a lot of rich empirical data on what what's actually going on with young people so um, it's, it's almost kind of perfectly timed um, <laughs> that's nice to hear I'll let my university research impact people know <laughs> And it, but it's funny in a way because because obviously um, the timing of academic books is is always a bit random, and I kind of get the sense that this one has been really kind of like long in the gestation, um, and that's probably where we could start with the book. Actually, is is the kind of sense of of where it came from and, and how it's sort of part of your um, your broader academic career. Sure. Yeah. Well. I um, the book itself came out of my doctoral research, which started a really long time ago. Now I think. 2010 is when I started my PhD and uh, my aim was as I think a lot of early career researchers to get as many articles and publications out of my PhD as possible Um, but then like a lot of early career researchers as well my the contracts that I were on really meant that I didn't have the time uh, to kind of be producing that sort of thing um, you know going from teaching post to teaching post Um, and so it got to the point where it was taking longer and longer and that was actually a really useful I think period of time for me because it stopped being like how quickly can I get this out but actually how can I write the book that I want to write um and so what I did was spend quite a lot of time um you know thinking about what do I want this book to say um how much of my personality do I want to get into it um you know and where do I want it to go so the book itself is actually a much bigger departure from my uh, PhD research than I'd intended it to be but I think it's a, I think it's a much better um, book for it so swings and roundabouts being an early career researcher I think I, I was really struck um by this initial phrase the, the I think it was something like the regulatory role of taste um that almost kind of summed up the book actually yeah um and it, it'd be good to sort of Un- unpack that and I guess un- unpack it in the context of, of exactly what you've just said because you've you know sort of gestured towards your working circumstances regulating you know kind of your ability to produce mm. them um, and then this idea of um, taste being a kind of key regulatory thing for for young people's experiences. Yeah well I think as an interdisciplinary scholar I've always kind of straddled the cultural studies, sociology, media studies um part of uh, academia and even when I was an undergraduate I wasn't really sure where I fit and I remember reading Bourdieu when I was in my first year and I just remember just being really struck by how that spoke to my own 
experiences as a working class scholar, uh, you know, working class student in quite um, a middle class setting. And so there's something about Bourdieu that I just really, really liked. Um, and I was really interested in this idea of how taste cultures, they regulate and they classify. Um, but I, you know, I kind of didn't want to write about class uh, per se. Um, and I was more interested um, as a feminist scholar, and I got, you know, really got my teeth into feminist theory, how it was that these ideas of taste as regulatory actually um, perform a really important role and a central role in how gender is reproduced. Um, because one of the things that I've been thinking about, um, you know, throughout my life is, you know, how is it that femininity and masculinity persist despite, you know, increasing public and academic um, understandings of academia and of patriarchy? Um, and, I, and I thought maybe there was actually something that Bourdieu could could tell us about that. And and that's kind of where I got my teeth, teeth stuck into the, the taste thing. I mean, it, it's particularly interesting because Bourdieu has a... Uh perhaps a, a kind of a mixed uh, reception and reputation uh, with regard to gender. Um, you know, some of his writings are what the kids call kind of highly problematic mm. uh, in this regard. And so it was really interesting to see, see Budget deployed in, in, in this way. Uh, and I guess in a way kind of, um, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, it struck me that you'd use Budget as a way of, of kind of saying that, the regulatory role of taste produces problems for young people. Mm. Uh, and specifically, it, it kind of, you know, in regulating also kind of closes down possibilities of, of um, you know, who young people might become and, you know, what their lives might be like. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I think I think taste and, and I think regulation, you know, provides problems for people across their life stages and across their identities. Um, and I think it's certainly a way of othering people, uh, you know, into putting people into particular boxes. And that was definitely one of the things um, that I wanted to to get to grips with. And also, I mean, I spent a long. It's it's, in, it's funny because actually all of my undergraduates. I mean, my my very first undergraduate. Well, I've only got one undergraduate. That one was in sociology and politics of contemporary culture. So actually, it felt more like a cultural studies degree than a sociology one. And then my. Uh, my master's was in um, media and cultural politics. So then I stepped even further away from sociology. But when I came back to writing my PhD, you know, Bourdieu was there, um, you know, right in the centre. And I kind of really had to deal with a lot of his, you know, his blind spots around gender, trying to figure out exactly how I could deploy Bourdieu within this kind of contemporary cultural studies moment, particularly for, with youth cultures, which have often been theorised as being much more um, exciting um, or um, deviant, you know, a lot more kind of exotic perhaps than um, sort of more adult cultures. And so I wanted to apply this kind of really mundane thing um, to everyday lives of young people. And actually, I spent about three years really trying to get to grips with the sociological theory, which really isn't my language either as a as an academic or really um, as a human being. So I was trying to get my trying to get my head around that. Um, and it turned out that really. I mean, hopefully there'll be some other PhD students listening to this. It was something that I really wasn't sure if it was going to fit until right at the very last moment, where in my last year, I thought, you know what, Bourdieu can't speak to gender in this post-structural moment in the way that I need him to. Um, so let's see if we can you know, let Bourdieu open up this this conversation about taste and then let Foucault take it from there. Really, that's kind of what I thought. Um, I still don't know. 
I, I know that there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of work around gender and taste and Bourdieu and, and the idea of classification, but it's certainly not something that I've been able to solve. And there's certainly conversation around Bourdieu and gender and capital that I really hope other academics can have. And the book, uh, you know, th- th- this is why I was, I was kind of gesturing towards it makes this important theoretical contribution as well as, as having all of this kind of really rich and interesting detail. And that rich and interesting detail, I guess, is a product of uh, your, your methodological kind of commitments. And, you know, you've mentioned engagements with, with feminism as, as well. So it, we probably need to know a bit, I guess, about not so much who the young people are, but but what the context for the research was, because because quite early on in the book, um, you know, the sort of usual engagements um, that researchers have about their subjectivity and their position mm. is, is is bolstered by this sense of Norfolk is really important to this book. You know, the kind of the context in which you're doing the research really really matters. Yeah, um, I would. Yeah, it, Norfolk is a really interesting. I think, site of study, because it's one that's completely overlooked within the academic um, field. And it's also one that I think is interesting as well, because, you know, it's rural and it's also not rural. And there are, and there are coastal towns, there's a lot of deprivation in Norfolk. And um, it's just a, a largely overlooked field. Um, but one of the things that I really liked was the interactions that students, um, the, the, the young people who'd grown up outside of Norfolk had with the kids that had grown up in Norfolk. Um, there was one moment that I really liked where um, I think we were at, at, at Outskirts High, which is, um, a, you know, a, a mixed gender, um, pretty working class school. And two of the students said in the focus group said to the, the class as a whole, like, I think if we were in London, our experiences would be really different. They had this sense that like there was this other place where they could be freer and they could be more open, but they felt that Norfolk was a little bit of a backwater, um, which as a, as having grown up in Norfolk, it's definitely my experience as well. There's this sense that like, oh, well, we're not as progressive as we could be. Um, and uh, a sense that it, maybe things will be better out there. And that's certainly something actually that they spoke about in terms of the regulatory role of taste as well. It wasn't just the sort of geographical location that they felt, uh, limited them but also their age as well they felt like once they got out of the high school it would become different and obviously I think I gestured to that in the book because I don't think I, I didn't have the heart to tell them that like it doesn't really get better it just gets different um, but yeah that was one yeah the, the space and the age of the young people um, was really important to the the findings that I that I had but I also think you know they are indicative of, of much wider trends of the way that taste regulates if you say what i mean yeah i mean that that was going to be the the kind of key question i guess to to unpack the book is like well how does taste regulate then and and i mean that kind of prompts you know probably a a, a massive long sort of sort of answer and i guess maybe to you know to, to make it digestible for you like you know to make it a fair question maybe we could sort of kick off with a sense of like what do they think about gender like what what were kind of young people's um, conceptualizations of gender uh, that you found? Yeah, this was um, a chapter um, that I um, really enjoyed writing uh, because I think so many people, when they do gender research, they forget to ask the people that they're researching what they think about gender. And so as part of the um, research process, 
I talked through, um, you know, conceptions agenda uh, with the focus groups in particular. And it seems that, you know, young people really, they really were open uh, to these wider, um, you know, conceptions agenda, gender beyond the binary, um, cis and trans um, experiences agenda. But ultimately, when, when it came down to it, there was this kind of discoverability or knowability of gender that was underneath it all. So even if someone was presenting perhaps as non-binary or as gender fluid, they felt like there must be a way of knowing. There must be a way of ultimately beneath everything else. Maybe it's you know what genitalia they have or their chromosomes, but there is a discoverability of gender. Um, and that's one of the things that really came through. Um, so it was like they could they could imagine it and they could be progressive and think about gender beyond the binary. But ultimately, they needed it to be fixed for their own understandings as well. And this, I mean, you know, this is where kind of taste comes in. And, and, and it's funny in a way, because when we start from that point of view, it makes it really obvious that taste would, would regulate both, you know, kind of presentations and experiences of gender, mm. um, because there are particular consequences, as you say, for kind of not fitting in with the right kinds of taste. Yeah, absolutely. There really are consequences. And I think, I guess this is what I was, you know, sort of getting at a minute ago when I was, when they were sort of imagining that there were other geographical spaces or other time spaces where, you know, things would be better. And I think what they imagined would be better is that they wouldn't be as judged for being who they really wanted to be. I think they felt that in high school, and I I'm refer to it as the hyper-regulatory um, space of high school, because of the way that these young people are kind of put into groups and often um, asked to spend entire days or weeks um, with the same cohort, you know, this sense of um, making, I think uh, I refer to Irving Goffman actually, where it's like one um, off note can disrupt the entire performance, um, thinking about it like in terms of a piano. And I think that that's one of those things that the young people were really wary of, you know, they wanted to be able to present a coherent um, and a recognisably sort of appropriate and not just gender identity, but actually all of the different facets of their identity for gender was the one that I was focusing on. And what they really wanted to do was to not find themselves in a position where someone was quest either questioning their authenticity or making um, assumptions or um, attributing them to uh, subjectivities with which they didn't identify. The, the sort of almost like obvious um you know, almost kind of like bland, um, standard kind of understanding of this comes through masculinity and mm. the boys. And, you, you know, I mean, both in, in terms of sort of academic research, but also in terms of uh, maybe media discussions and possibly everyday life, we have a sense of, uh, you know, you draw on the language of the idea of a hegemonic form of, of masculinity um, as a kind of key idea. And, and yeah, it'd be good to know sort of, what did the boys like? Because that seems a really kind of um, straightforward example of, of that sense of kind of regulation and almost, I guess, the kind of fear of, of being misread. Yeah, I think um, hegemonic masculinity is a really important concept in the book and one that I think, um, you know, I demonstrate its, its perseverance, I guess, within um, uh, in the academic theory because it was very much the sense that there were there were clear ideas as to what were appropriate uh, masculine 
taste articulations. So things that it were appropriate for a boy to say that they liked. And it was regulated not just by boys, but also by girls as well. You know, they, they all had a sense of what it is that boys should like. And it was just really, you know, it, it wasn't especially um, surprising. None of it was surprising. So things that demonstrated um, physical um, prowess or um, physicality. So that might be sport, which is, um, you know, within the literature really um, tied to hegemonic masculinity um but also other ways so obviously not all boys like sport related things um I think most boys in academia <laughs> came from backgrounds where they didn't like sport actually but they preferred music um but ways in which so the young people would find ways of reading um kind of appropriately masculine reasons for liking something so if boys didn't like football they needed to kind of recuperate that um, through other taste articulations so they would talk about music that they liked but it would have to be some form of music that really demonstrated a particular a particularly sort of um, active and physical mode of communicating that media through that medium so it might be guitar playing that's one of the things that I talk about um, but also um, rap as well like a kind of real verbal um, control whereas you know when girls were talking about the music they liked you know it was expected that girls would like something that you know uh, was much more passive and fit the kind of um the the norms of sort of you know fangirl not even necessarily fangirls but girls like pop music they like boys um that they can look at um you know attractive people so even if girls liked guitar music it would be read differently so it would be like girls like this guitar music because they fancy the singer rather than the girls like this guitar music because they like the you know the technical ability of being able to play the guitar which is something that boys are supposed to like and boys really um demonstrated a lot of uh mastery and over you know this kind of um demonstrating knowledge um over these particular um taste cultures so um like an example of that would be something like um, Chuck Norris they talked about. And um, so the methods behind the book were I did a series of um, identity pages. And in these identity pages, um, young people would go online and they would write, they'd kind of use a framework similar to um, a Facebook page or a MySpace page or a Bebo page as it was. Like I said, it took a really long time to write this book. And they would write down the things that they liked and disliked. And then what I did was I took a sample of those um, and I removed the gender um, icon from the from the middle and then just asked people to guess what gender they thought someone was based on the tastes um, that they'd included. So one of the people um, that came up was Chuck Norris. Um, and Chuck Norris, I, th I wonder if maybe his moment has kind of passed within the popular moment. But, you know, back in the day, well, I say back in the day, about five or six so years ago, you know, he was really someone that you would Google, you know, can Chuck Norris do this? Chuck Norris can do that, whatever. And they really identified this kind of super hegemonic, um, you know, uh, prototypical masculinity in him. And they would say, this is something that boys like. And then what they would do was they would then demonstrate knowledge over Chuck Norris and pretty much just mansplain in the group. So you'd find that there would be some girls in the moment who would be like, oh, yeah, doesn't Chuck Norris do this and doesn't Chuck Norris do that? And then boys would say pretty much exactly the same thing that she'd said, but said it with more authority and conviction. Um, so in those kind of ways, they would take ownership over particular uh, masculine uh, subjectivities. 
Um, other things that boys, oh, okay, yeah, other things that boys said that they liked would also, I think I've got a heading in one of the sections of like boys like sexy girls. And there was one thing in it where like they would have, they would display this um, heterosexual uh, masculinity as well. So they would talk about celebrities like, um, well, Megan Fox was the one that kept coming up because she was mentioned on one of the identity pages. And through that, they could really um, uh, objectify these women and they could really perform this heterosexual uh, longing uh, for these particular celebrities. Whereas with femininity, there wasn't quite so much of a clear sense of what was feminine. It was kind of everything other that wasn't masculinity, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it'd be good to know uh, what the girls liked, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, straightforward, obvious kind of next question about how is it different, how, you know, to an extent were you talk later in the book actually how were the the values of girls tastes and you know taste commitments assigned lower values you know and and um you know this telling us something about uh the lower value given to to femininity and and, and girls more generally yeah i think um it's, it's funny that at this particular moment in time that i should be talking about this because i'm trying to write a paper at the moment about the value of femininity and how it works with gendered bodies because it's really complicated um, and it's really complicated because it doesn't have that automatically um, hegemonic uh, sort of um, structure underneath um, patriarchy as masculinity does. You know, it's really difficult for femininity, I think, to hold value under patriarchy. But of course, there are more idealised forms of femininity that are enjoyed by middle class white able bodied girls perhaps than um, girls who don't fit those kind of norms. So it so and the girls seem to acknowledge that they they seem to send they had a sense of there being a femininity that was idealized and that was one where girls would um, they would like things like oh sorry um, they would um, say that they liked things uh, like. Uh, romance texts and things like that so um like uh chick flicks um all of those things that are kind of really derided within popular culture anyway are the sort of things that girls would say this or and boys would say this is what we expect girls to like now i think what's interesting is that the girls themselves said that they didn't find it especially um you know this to be a, a subject position that they really wanted to take up and in part of the book, what I actually talk about is how young people, girls, how young girls distance themselves from feminine subjectivities because they really offer dissatisfying um, possibilities. And that's, I think, that's one of the things that I found trickiest to write about and to try and figure out because there isn't really, there isn't the depth, I think, of understanding of how femininity works under patriarchy as there is of how masculinity works under patriarchy um, and I think it's because it's complicated because hegemony doesn't work the same way uh, in feminine gender cultures as it does um, in masculine ones so when they were thinking more about girls tastes I think what they were looking at was less the sort of texts that girls would be expected to like actually and more about the sort of ways of articulating tastes that were appropriate for girls so it might be that um, girls 
there weren't any particular celebrities that it was that girls would be expected to like. Although, of course, they would be expected to like that. They wouldn't be expected to like particularly sort of masculine, um, hetero, um, you know, celebrities like Megan Fox because it would be expected um, that they would actually rather than sort of align themselves as you know, fancying them um, in some kind of um, sexualized form, actually they would want to critique them. And so, yeah, one of the things that I found in the book was it was like just having an opinion on celebrities was something that they expected girls to do. And that that kind of um, comes into the, I talk about the sort of uh, the feminine value of, of bitching and how actually sort of um, bitching and slagging off particular um, female celebrities is a way of doing femininity. So it's less about the text itself and more about the means um, of communicating or articulating that taste. What about regulation then? Um, Because if we've got these two, um, say, different patterns of taste uh, and different, you know, modes of expressions and relationships to, uh, as you say, to texts, whether it's, you know, dominance and mastery of, I don't know, uh, a guitar player's back catalogue versus, you know, having opinions on on celebrities or or whatever. Mm -hmm. What are the penalties for not doing that in the appropriate kind of uh, gendered form? And and how did people, I suppose, like, because towards the back end of the the book, you you engage much more directly with with individual stories. So Joe and Tom, Anna and Naomi, Mm. um, who on the one hand, you know, are kind of like uh, quite powerfully, I think, uh, challenging these norms, challenging the kind of regulatory role of of these taste patterns but also at the same time never quite escape them either no and this is um where for a a while i i thought that i had a series of data that was about you know the the queering and the and the troubling and um you know the pushing back against these um hegemonic um taste cultures but actually what i realized the the more i looked at it and and the more that i worked through the different ways in which these young people were pushing back or or problematizing or, or not quite being 100% um, in sort of the ideal appropriate um, articulator of taste, I guess, was actually they so many of their tastes by the wider group were then recuperated, um, you know, under, under the, uh, the heterosexual matrix into a way that actually didn't really trouble too much um, in the end at all. So I talk a little bit about um, for masculine subjectivities and the inappropriate tastes um, done by um, those that presented as boys. Yeah, I drew on um, Joe and Tom and they were both quite different, actually, in terms of the way that they did it. So Tom, um, you know, inhabits a a non-white, non-Norfolk body. Uh, Joe is very much Norfolk. Um, He's very white um, as well. Uh, but they they secured their masculinity in in different ways. So the thing that the boys are scared of mostly is being called gay, and I was really surprised in the wake of you know a lot of the inclusive masculinity theory that actually this was going to you know this perseveres as a as a problem within boys' lives. But they really didn't want to be called gay unless they were um, unless they actually identified um, as gay. Whereas with the girls, 
um, the thing that I kind of found. So I talked about Anna and Naomi who align much more um, heavily with masculine um, taste uh, cultures. So um, both Anna and Naomi really like football. That was one of the things um, that came out of it. And it seemed to me that girls had this kind of, they were under this almost like a double-edged sword really because they could do what they wanted, which is really freeing. But actually the only reason they could do what they wanted is because there was very little consequence to um, to deviating uh, because they had less to lose. Um, so it was fear of homosexualization was what regulated the boys, I think, quite a lot. Um, whereas with the girls, so um, so in some instances, um, the girls would be teased, um, but not in the same way that the boys would be teased if they um, aligned themselves a lot with masculine subjectivities. So girls would probably be teased because they were expect it was expected that they were trying to get on a level um, with boys. I think that's one of the things that one of the respondents said. Um, or being a bit try hard, whereas the boys didn't necessarily, um, they didn't have that. Uh, they just had the fear of homosexualization. Now, one thing that I think, one thing that I really liked um, or enjoyed writing about in um, in that chapter on transgressions um, is the the example of um, one of the identity page um, prompt writers who described himself as a manly male. And he's the one I was talking about earlier who mentioned um, Chuck Norris. He said he didn't like Hello Kitty. Like all of the things that were kind of atypical, uh, well, no, not atypical, were completely what you'd expect of a sort of a standard normative gender subjectivity. So all the things that were feminine, he rejected. All of the things that were masculine, like super masculine, um, hyper masculine, um, he embraced. And actually, that's one of the things that all of the focus group participants really um, latched onto. And they were, you know, they thought maybe he was trying just a little bit too hard. So in that sense, I think it problematized the um, certainty of the, um, of the um, hegemonic system. You know, it wasn't just that display the most and you'll have the most power. You know, you, it had to be done um, in, an, in an authentic way. So um, because actually demonstrating too much of that, being too try hard, they thought then perhaps he had something to hide. And then in that moment, it was about maybe he's gay, but he's pretending he's not gay by liking all of these things, by being overly performatively masculine, if that makes sense. That sort of gesture towards how much of a massive downer it is being in high school. <laughs> like, yeah. it, on, on a, like, just... As you say, you know, it, it, it it's kind of everything is hyper because you're in this, you know, enclosed space with, with all these different rules and stuff like that. And I suppose this is it, it, it's both an antidote to a lot of discussions um, of, um, you know, I guess the kind of optimism of of things get better or, you know, things things might be changing. But also it, it helps us to explain uh, why we see, you know, discussions of young people um, as being under particular kinds of pressure and, you know, um, mm. entirely justifiably kind of reacting uh, badly to that. But, but I guess that the kind of the end of the book is about not ambivalence, but, you know, a kind of a sense of the young people understanding this in a way. And I was, I was really struck, you know, I um, picked out this, this comment that you'd highlighted by Naomi about, you know, things are really hard to change actually, you know, it, it takes, takes a lot of work and, and that kind of sense of ambivalence captured, I think a lot of how complicity isn't the right word, is it? But, you know, 
the young people are invested in this system mm. as much as it limits them and you know uh, shapes and regulates them yeah and Naomi actually I really enjoyed having Naomi in the group because I felt like Naomi was the most exasperated out of all of them um, she just seemed she just seemed perpetually tired in a way that she was just tired of um, of of the the need to kind of be performative all the time you know this need to perform in high school in order to to fit in and yeah at the end it was actually at the end of one of the sessions um you know as, as people were starting to file out of the group out of the room she said to me she yeah she said what what do you want to do with this <laughs> you know which is um a question that I thought I'd answered in the consent forms but clearly I hadn't and I said to her I was like well I just want to figure out what what's going on um with young people um try and figure out you know I can't remember exactly what I said something along the lines of I just want to try and figure out what's stopping you being able to be who you really want to be um and she said yeah that's 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 impossible like it's like you can't do that like she was just exasperated she um I think she was just she was just a really representative of um the the work and the labor that goes into performing appropriately at high school and so I did really want to respond to that um in the publication that I, that I wanted to come out of my PhD so I, I talked about it in in my PhD thesis but I wanted to be able to say you know what if you're going to pick up this book and you're going to read all this stuff actually what can we do about it and yeah it's going to take a long time I think we have as adults we always put a lot of hope into young people but we forget that young people are also as tired as we are a lot of the time so I think we owe it um to young people to be actively trying to do things um to better uh, their lives and, and to contribute to culture shifts so one of the things that I do in my spare time is um I run a uh, girl empowerment um community group um and you know and that's one of the ways that i think you know getting out into the community we can actually start to do some things that challenge um gender norms patriarchy all of those sorts of things but i think it's particularly important in norfolk where a lot of um, parents um you know haven't enjoyed university education um where they are living in poverty where actually just having a moment just to think about the consequences of um, some of the ways that we talk about things, um, you know, those consequences on young people's lives. You know, that's one kind of thing that we can do. I also think we can really lobby um, for teachers. I think one of the things that I really noticed in this is that, you know, teachers are tired. It was hard to get access to young people, you know, to do the research. Um, and teachers are increasingly be asked to do more and more and they're also being driven um, to contribute to league tables in much the same way that higher education is as well um, so you know if we can make it easier for them to be able to talk about um, gender um, within the school uh, that would be I think one one such way that we could contribute um, to a culture shift and hopefully you know change it a little bit so that people like Naomi don't feel exasperated and tired all the time. You'd mentioned um, doing projects beyond the university. Is, is that where you're kind of looking in terms of future academic work or 
Um, are you going to do, you know, another book around these themes? Um, I mean, the, it, it's probably, you know, sort of trite comment, but it'd be interesting to see what happens to these young people, you know, the extent to which um, not only the regulatory space of the school, but, you know, Norfolk as well, like, you know, are the likes of Naomi thinking in terms of, I have to go to London, um, you know, which is quite a common sort of trope around the way that Britain is organised in terms of the kind of spatial geography of affordances for expressions of identity. Um, or is it time to like dump all this stuff and do something else entirely? <laughs> I would like to return to this at some point. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm at that point now where, you know, I feel like I've exhausted it. I really, really, I do want to think about, you know, conceptualizations of femininity and, and think about how femininity works within young people's lives. And also to try and think about that theoretically um, as well and and to think about femininity underneath patriarchy in terms of the community work that I do I, yeah I will always keep doing that um, I think working in the community is one of the ways that really I think sustains me as an academic um, because it you know it gets me out um, into the world and you know having conversations which I really enjoy having um, not all of them are easy but they are ones that I do um, you know yeah I do enjoy talking um, to young people and older people um, about you know issues tied around feminism I think where I go next though is I think I need to take a little bit of a break um, with hands-on um, stuff uh, you know talking to young people and actually I think what I'm really um, keen to do is to think about ways in which we can encourage resistances um, and how they can be played out so I've been a long-term lover of zines. I don't know if you're familiar with zines, but yeah. I really, yeah, I just absolutely love zines. Um, and so I really love the way that zines can get us to take a little bit of time to think about the changes that we want to see and to work collaboratively to get them. So I think my next project is probably going to go down that sort of um, that sort of path because, you know, the, the more time I spend um, in academia, the more time I spend thinking about uh, patriarchy and the impact that that has on everybody's lives you know okay well what can we do and what can we do in a way that isn't just me writing a journal article you know like that those aren't largely read what I want to do is to do something that speaks to people from a range of different backgrounds and I think zines do that really nicely and so I think all going well I think the direction that I'm going in now is is probably zine culture and and finding ways to encourage resistances within communities <laughs>